Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are counting on you right now to completely take over, to take the words off these pages and minister them to our hearts. May we leave here knowing you deeper. May we leave here feeling your presence. May we leave here being encouraged at who you are today, yesterday, and forever. As we look at this book and we look at this young lady, would you show us how incredible you are and how you work in our lives to make incredible things happen? We thank you for this time. We pray for your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I just want to give you a little background. I'm going to give you a little background on timing, a little background on author, a little background on theme and purpose of this book. Best we know, it was written about 460 B.C. Oh, and just so you know, we're not going to do questions during my teaching. If you want to ask me something afterwards, just come up, okay? I'm just going to go straight through the teaching. Um, Best we know, it was written about 460 B.C. before Ezra's return to Jerusalem. The evidence of the teaching timing also is suggested because of the Feast of Purim, which we're going to study about in Chapter 9. The Feast of Purim had actually already been happening for several years. We'll learn about that, as I said, in 9. And the book was written before the Persian Empire eventually fell to Greece. We don't really know who wrote the book, but it's thought that the author was Jewish, both from the emphasis of the origin of the Jewish festival that we will talk so much about and from the Jewish nationalism that runs through this story. The author's knowledge of Persian customs and the setting of the story in the city of Susa, absent from any reference of the land of Judah or to Jerusalem, suggests that he was or she was a resident of a Persian city. Now the theme and the purpose. <clears throat> I think the biggest thing I get on the theme and the purpose of the writing of this book is that you and I would truly grasp God's providence in protecting his people. That's the first one. The other one is that God can use Anyone to do incredible things. i got to stop using that word incredible. Okay, that's the last time I'm going to say incredible. God can use anyone to do impossible things. Anyone. You don't have to bring your pedigree. You don't have to bring your degree. You don't have to bring um, your, your scholastic record. You don't have to bring any of that. You just have to come willingly to God, and we see that throughout this book. In this story, the author calls to mind the ongoing conflict of Israel with the Amalekites. Now, if you remember back, and I'm not going to go all the way back into the history, but this conflict began in Exodus, and now that Israel has been released from captivity, Haman, who's our villain in the story, his edict is the final major effort in the Old Testament to destroy the Jews. And unfortunately, it wasn't the last effort made in our history. 
The central purpose was to record the annual festival of Purim and to keep it alive for generations. You know how the word of God says that we're to tell our children and our children's children and our children's children's children? Well, that's what this was for. This festival was to keep this story, this event alive in the minds of the Jews of how great God is. This book also proves again that God will protect his people and those who come against his people will suffer. And then most importantly, the author has deliberately refrained from using the word God or any religious group in this book. The most incredible thing to me, there I said it again. The, the, <laughs> one of the most amazing things in this book is that as you read this book, You will not read the word of God. You will not read the word of Jesus. But God and Jesus are on every page in every circumstance of this story. And God, as I said, uses a simple Jewish girl, nothing special, very young, no special gifts, no great education, no pedigree, just like you and me, to save a nation. Utterly fantastic. All right, let's read chapter 1. When I went to this uh, retreat, a pastor's wives retreat back in California, it was to me as almost the curtain rose, and I could see in my mind's eye the banquet hall, and I could see the characters, and I hope this summer I will be able to do this for you. And I hope you will see King Xerxes. And I hope you will see Vashti. In my mind, I have them pictured. And I almost wish I could draw so I could draw life-size things up here and have them for you. But I can't do that. So uh, it's interesting to see what you will think in your mind. Chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces... That's a vast area, you guys, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, catch that, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, so that's the second banquet, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hanging of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Now the wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way 
For the king instructed that all wine stewards to serve each man what he had wished. There were no bouncers. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirit, to put it lightly, from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who were, and I'm going to botch their names, so just bear with me, okay? Menumen, Biztha, Harbon, Bigtha, Abatha, Zethar, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal robes in order to display her beauty to all the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti said, not going to happen. She refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. You think that anger was fueled by that alcohol? I do. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke to the wise men who understood the times and the customs and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mers, Marsena, and Menkum, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king, were the highest in the kingdom. Now, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? Because she had disobeyed. He asked, she has not obeyed the king's command of, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, and the units have taken her. Then Menucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and so, will, and so they will despise their husbands, and they will their, despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day in the Persian day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who had heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. Take notice of that that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, and the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as many can proposed. He sent dispatchers to all the parts of the kingdom. Remember, 127 provinces. This didn't happen overnight. To each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming 
in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his household. All right. It's a lot there, isn't it? This is what we're going to talk about today in chapter 1. My plan is to do chapter 1 today, chapter 2 next week, 3 and 4 the following week, 5 and 6 the next week, and the last week will be 7, 8, 9, and 10. Six, no. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> Let's just do one this week. I know I have it written down. Okay. So please take note, as I said, as we read this book, God is not mentioned on any page. Yet, I hope that when we get done with this, you will see that God was in and behind and about everything that happens in this story. The story opens with a king who is given different names according to different translations. The NIV calls him Xerxes. The New King James calls him King Ahasuerus. But in the Greek, it's Xerxes, and so we're going to call him King Xerxes. By the way, I will be using and reading out of the NIV Bible. He lived in the capital city of Susa, and it's interesting to me that this book is centered in the land of Persia, and as you know, that's present-day Iran, a land of many, many, many struggles, even today. And that is where our story begins, and that is where the play opens. And the more and the more I read this book, as I said, I can see it happening in my mind's eye. Susa was the city capital, and it was 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. And this was a vast and mighty kingdom of Medes and Persians. So let's look back again at verses 1 and 2. This is, a, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne to the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and the officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles and the, of the provinces were present. This is all men, guys. There are no women here. This was the banquet for men. And I don't know what your geography like is like, but my geography was never that great. But when I went to China, I decided to bone up on geography. And so I and the internet's a great thing because you can pull up any map of anything. So I, I encourage you to pull up a map of this area and kind of get to know it. It's really, really a vast area. It was an enormous empire. And to think that one man governed it is really amazing to me because it was divided up into 127 provinces. And, you know, I really never understood what a province was till I went to China either. But it's kind of like what our states are. You know, when I went to China, there's this big, massive area, and there's all these little pr provinces. And my granddaughter happened to be from one certain province, so I wanted to know where that province was. So it's kind of like that, provinces. And I'm sure most of you are better at geography than I was. It was a class in college that I think I got a C-plus in, so goes to show you that my geography wasn't that great. Now, this was a fairly new king. 
He went to battle almost as soon as he came to the throne, and he defeated the Egyptians. This was a great feather in his cap, and he had a powerful reputation to uphold. This was one of the reasons for this grand banquet. He had another strong nation that he hated, and that was the nation of Greece, and it was his desire to conquer her. And it seems that that is one of the reasons behind this banquet and this celebration that we will now peek into. Look at chapter, look at verse three with me. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, and the princes, princes, and the nobles and the pro, of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, that is six months, that's half a year, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, I don't know about you, but after about an hour and a half at a party, I look at Vic and we give each other that look, you know, that look when you're married that you know, let's go. You know, (laughs) after about an hour and a half, I'm ready. Six month party. The wine's flowing. They'd have to go into rehab after this. (laughs) I mean, seriously, the wine just flowed and flowed and flowed. It must have been quite a sight to see. Can you imagine that? They said that the, the goblets were made of gold and no two goblets were like, mind you. They weren't made at Pier 1. They were handcrafted. The couches were of gold. Now, me and my weakness thought, I don't know if that would have been really comfortable to sit on for six months, but I'm sure it was incredibly beautiful. I, I remember as a child, I used to do mosaics. I used to buy these little uh, tiles crushed up in a bag. Did any of you do these, or am I just too old? Okay. And you would have this cardboard, and you would place these mosaics on this cardboard, and it would come out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and it would come out to be a picture, and I think of mosaic. I'd love to have a wall of mosaic tile in my house. Never going to happen, but I would love to have it. But it was absolutely beautiful and all hand work. Verse 9. Verse 6. The garden and the hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings of marble pillars. There were couches of gold, mosaic pavement, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. And as we said, the wine was served in the goblets. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and I'm not going to say their names again, you know who they are, (laughs) to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, this is in a day where women and men were separate. Men had their own parties. Women had their own parties. 
We're not so different from that today, are we? Sometimes the guys to go to the cave to watch the Redskins lose. Or win. <laughs> or win. We pray this year they will win, right? We pray. See Matthew McConaughey was out there yesterday. Mm -hmm. Okay, just a side note for y'all. The men and the women were separate. We sometimes, women, have our little Tupperware parties or our little pampered chef parties, but they were always separate. And women were veiled. And, you know, I tried to do some research into this, and I didn't get, I didn't get a lot of um, feedback on it. But um, in that time, it was customary, and it was law for a woman's face to be veiled. And she was not to show her beauty to anyone but her husband. And, you know, we do see women in this area that still hold true to this custom. Their face is for no one but their husband. Sometimes I think that would be a nice thing to just get to wear something over my face and so nobody would have to see it but my husband. But that's not the way it was. So the celebrations were different but a lot alike also. Queen Vashti was there to thank all her servants who had worked so hard for her for the last six months. And Queen, uh, King Xerxes was there trying to build up, build up support and show his splendor and grandeur so the people, the men, would know that he was worthy of serving and going to battle. And a command is given. Imagine how beautiful Vashti must have been. If your king was the most powerful in all the empire on earth, and you were valued for your beauty, not for your intelligence, not for your social skills, but merely for your physical appearance. She had to be an extremely beautiful woman to be the queen of this king, at least on the outside. And as I said, it was customary for Persian women to be veiled in front of all men except their husband. But this command seemed to be that she would come without her veil so that she could show her beauty and so that the other men would know how incredibly beautiful she was and they would admire the power of King Xerxes. At this point, there are two views on this story. One sides with Queen Vashti and the other sides with King Xerxes. And as I did research into this book, I thought, but that's not the point. The point isn't, was King Xerxes wrong in demanding that his wife come and display her beauty, or was Queen Vashti wrong in disobeying her husband? That's not the point of this story. There are some importance in those aspects, but the important thing in this, in this story is that God is setting things in place. He's got to move people around so that his will can be done. And I don't know if you see it in your life, but, you know, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I see this in my everyday life. I see how God puts people in position and God how God moves them. I see how things are for such a time as this and then not for a while again. I see how God allows things to come into our life to mold us and shape us into ways that he can work through us as a vessel because you do realize that he doesn't need us. 
you do realize that we are just broken vessels that he graciously fills and works through and uses us to accomplish his purposes. That's the story and the meaning and the truth of this entire book. It's all about what God's going to do. First, we have to remember that these were not believers. They had not read Ephesians 6. They had not going to marriage encounter or marriage counseling or seminars on how to love your wife and how to respect your women. These are heathen people that we're talking about. This was their culture. These were their ways. So let's not be so quick to jump on a bandwagon to bash Queen Xerxes or to find fault with Queen Vashti. It's just the way it was. The facts are that Vashti refused the king and the king burned with anger. And again, I say probably fueled by the flowing wine. And there's not a whole lot to admire about King Xerxes, but there is one thing here that we see. He did consult wise men in this situation. And you know, that leads me to a point. It is really important that we have wise people in our lives that we can consult. Now, realize I used the word consult. Uh, I don't know if it was last Saturday night or the week before that, Gary talked about not going to people for answers. Was it, it was two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. He said, knowing the will of God. We've got to hear God's will for our life through his word, through the Holy Spirit. People are a great, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Confirmation of what God is telling us. But it is really great in your life if you have wise people that you can go to. I was very fortunate as a young pastor's wife to, and even before I was a pastor's wife, before Vic was called into the ministry, to have a pastor's wife live across the street from me in a neighborhood we called Gospel Gulch. It was right across the street from Calvary Costa Mesa, and 99.9% of the people who lived there were Christians and went to Calvary Chapel. And it was a wonderful area to, to live in because everybody loved everybody, and everybody you know, looked after everybody's kids, and all the kids played together. And you know, there were some sad things that happened there, and it was not, a, it was not by any means a middle-class um, neighborhood. It was a lower income um, neighborhood but it was home to us and we have fond memories of it and there were a lot of great people there but God in his wisdom chose to put Carol Wilde across the street from me and Malcolm Wilde across the street from me if you don't know who they are Malcolm Wilde pastors Calvary Chapel Merritt Island and Carol is his wife and um, we used to sit out on the lawn some of you know this and um, this is what we called our lower class uh, beach club. We would sit out on the lawn, front lawn, because we didn't really have backyards. We lived in a fourplex, and we'd put the plastic pools out for the kids, and we'd put our lawn chairs out there, and we'd come out in our shorts and our tops, and we would sunbathe, and um, the kids would play in the pools. And I, I just, I sent her an email this week, and I said, Carol, I want you to know how much I value your input into my life and how God used you to minister to me over the years. And I said, you've helped me to make me the woman that I am today. And I want you to know how much I love you and how grateful I am for you. 
And she emailed me back and she said, oh, you made me laugh. I remember those times so well and how we would sit out there and wait for the kids to come home, the older kids to come home, walking home from school because they went to school at Calvary. But I can tell you that there were times that we sat and had the deepest conversations about life and being a woman and being a mother and um, just being a godly woman and how we, we both wanted to please the Lord and we talked about the things that we wanted to do someday in ministry together and some of them we've done and some of them we have yet to do. But she was what I called my spiritual mom. And I would tell you that if you don't have one, and I don't care if you're 15 years old, if you're 60 years old, or if you're 90 years old, you need a spiritual mom in your life. I didn't grow up with a spiritual mom. I know some of you do have that, and you're blessed, and get on your knees and thank God for that. But those people are so important in our lives. Those people that we can call and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I know what the word of God says. This is what I'm feeling the spirit tell me. Could you pray with me? Could you encourage me? Those are great things to have. So the one feather in his cap is that he actually went to someone to help him. He consulted wise men about the situation, even in his anger. And that's another thing I want to touch on this morning is anger. You know, we don't have to learn to be angry, do we? It's a natural thing that comes. And I don't know about you, but I can feel it build up in me. Can you feel it build up in you? And I'm sure, I don't know when in this process he asked, I think it was at the end of the six months before the second banquet that he asked her to be uh, revealed, but I'm sure that all the alcohol he had fueled this anger, and I'm sure this anger was just boiling up inside of him. And even in this anger, he consulted wise men. I think that we as women have got to beg God to help us control our anger. I think for me, two of the biggest things that can set me off, and I'm growing, please don't judge me, please pray for me, please be gracious unto me, are being in the line at the grocery store. (laughs) And I know every time I get in the line at the grocery store, something's going to break or somebody's going to have 155 coupons or they forgot their checkbook or their debit card's not going to work. So I try to say to myself, why am I rushing? I have all the time in the world. There's only two little puppies at home waiting for me. Vic's not coming home till 5.30. The dishes are done. The clothes are in the dryer. Why am I rushing? Why am I rushing? In traffic. And I will tell you that I see men do this so much more than women. Do you ever see, and I'm sure you've never seen this, but I see it all the time. Men. Here's the line of traffic, and here's men. Do you know why they do that? Because they have to be first. They have to be first. Men have to be first. Just know that. If you know that and accept it, life will go a lot easier for you. But men are always rushing, and they get angry. And I'll say to myself, okay, relax, slow down, let them pass you, because I don't care. I'm just going to the gym. I'm just going to the gym to swim. I want to swim in peace. I don't want to have my blood pressure high. So just relax. We have 
to learn to control our anger. And we can do this. Mothers, we get frustrated. I don't have little ones anymore, and my grandchildren never frustrate me. I give them candy before their meals. I give them candy after dinner. I give them candy all the time. I let them do whatever they want. It doesn't bother me anymore. So you mothers take heart. When you get to be a grandmother, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. But take a breath. Count to ten. Do whatever you have to do. I've had some really neat conversations with Elisa lately about my mom and dad are past, and I think about my dad so much. I miss him so much. And I can remember when we were in Idaho. It was a very stressful three years. And I can remember being in the living room. I can see it like it happened yesterday. And my mom and dad were visiting from California. And I was upset at Elisa because she kept coming to me with her history lesson and she couldn't find the answers. But she didn't want to read the history chapter to find the answers. Who does it remind you of? Yes. And so I got upset with her and she went to her room crying, which I feel horrible about now. I'm sorry. And and I can see my daddy's face and my daddy looked at me and said, Susan, please don't get that upset. It's not that of a thing. And to me, during that time, those premenopausal years, you know, and Vic was starting a church and we didn't have a dime in the bank. I mean, it was so stressful. And if I could take back that time right now and rewind that and find those answers for her, I would do it like that. And then I would hug her and say, go out to play, and I'd give her a cookie. as we grow up, and this is one of the benefits of age, and, um, and I will tell you I am 60, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm 60. As we grow up and grow old, we mellow. And that's one of the most beautiful things about age. You know, don't despise your youth, but don't despise your age either. And be wise. Control anger. Have people you can go to for help. It's so important. Many times when we're stirred up, when we're angry or we're embarrassed, we act impetuously and we live to regret it. And I think we do this so much more than men do. You know how many times, and I know you won't tell anyone this, uh, do you know how many times I have gotten angry at Vic and he's been in the cave and I've marched or pounded up the stairs or stomped up to the stairs saying things under my breath. Well, guess what? God heard me. Does that shock you? I hope not. I hope that doesn't shock you. I'm a human being. But God knows, you know. And I don't have to apologize to Vic because he didn't hear me. But I have to apologize. I have to apologize to God because he did hear me. So I, I just want to encourage you that You know, as we go through this story, there are lessons to be learned. One here is to get the counsel of wise people. Don't go to them for your answers. Go to them for encouragement and strength and and, um, confirmation. And also, we've got to learn how to not act impetuously. You know, have you ever had, and then I'm going to move on because I could stay on this all day, have you ever had something happen to you and you've been hurt or somebody said something nasty to you or done something to hurt you and you thought, 
And this is the enemy, by the way, that sits right here on your shoulder and whispers right here in your ear. I know what you could do. I know how you can get them back. You could tell so-and-so this and such, and they can tell this person, and they're going to be in the weeds. And I think, I hear things like that. Do you hear things like that? Am I alone? I hear th- and then you know what I say? God, I don't want to be any part of that. I rebuke Satan, and I mean this. I say it out loud. I don't want to be any part of that, God. You are a God. You are on the throne. You are ultimate. You are in control. Shut my mouth. And that's what I do. And then I go on with my day. So, all right, let's get back to our scripture. Let's look at verse 13. You don't mind if I insert these little tidbits as we go along? Okay. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. All of them. According to the law, that what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. What must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She had not obeyed the command of the king of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. So they brought her the command and they said, come and display your beauty, beauty, and she said no. Then Macunum replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti had done wrong, not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will be known to all women. And so they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who had heard about Queen, the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. This is hard because, again, we have to realize these are heathen people. These are not Christian people who have had the Bible teaching and a husband knows how to love his wife and a wife knows how to submit to her husband. But we can take some things from this. You know, many people think, And sometimes we think that we live only unto ourselves, and that is not true, and that we do not influence others. I think probably in the last 30 years as I've grown as a Christian, I've realized how my actions influence others. And I started to realize this in my home when I started to have that great syndrome of PMS. I realized that my actions and my attitudes and my moods were setting the atmosphere for my entire home. And I had a very good friend who was going through the same thing at the same time. And she said to me, you know what my husband came home and said to me? And I said, what? She said, my husband came home and said to me, you either need to get on your knees before God or you need to see a doctor because this is not going to rule our home. And at first I thought, what a meanie. <laughs> and then I thought, wow, there's real wisdom in that. Now my husband, on the other hand, got a book 
unbeknownst to me, on PMS. And then he bided his time. And you know how Gary's talked about just that right moment with your husbands? Well, there are right times with wives too. And he came to me when I wasn't wigging out, which wasn't a whole lot of time. And he said, honey, can I talk to you? Now, I joke with my husband, and those of you who know him uh, well, uh, I joke that he should have been a doctor because he's got one of the greatest bedside manners I've ever seen in my life. And he has a tenderness and a gentleness that is far beyond anything I've seen. And he came to me and he said, I think I know what's wrong with you. And if you've ever seen that episode of Everyone Loves Raymond where Raymond gives, this is not that. It did not happen that way. And if you've not seen that episode, you need to find it and watch it. But it didn't happen that way. And he said, I think what you have, and you've got to remember, this was back in the early 80s. He said, I think you have something called PMS. And I said, am I going to die from it? And he said, no, you're not going to die from it. And he had read about it, and he explained it to me. And he said, I think if you go to the doctor, there are things they can help you with. And I did, and it did, and it got better, and it got worse, and it got better, and it got worse. But, you know, it was something that I had to deal with, and he helped me with. Um, he, He is a believer, He has been taught to love his wife. He has been taught to take care of his wife. But King Xerxes was never taught that. And on the other hand, Queen Vashti was not taught to reverence and respect her husband. Oh, I know she knew that it was uh, called upon her to reverence her husband. But do you think she had much interaction with her husband? Do you think they sat down at 5 o'clock every night for dinner? She rarely saw her husband, except for pageantry, And maybe if he wanted her, otherwise she lived totally separate from him. The facts are that Vashti refused the king and the king burned with anger. There's something that comes across in this portion of scripture here. And these wise men were consulted saying, this isn't just between you and her. And that's the truth of the matter. This wasn't just between him and her. This could affect an empire. And it is true that the higher responsibility God gives you, the greater the influence you have. This is so true. Each and every one of you has influence in your home. When you step outside of your home, wherever you go, you have influence there. If you're involved in your child's classroom, you have influence there. If you go to the grocery store, you have influence there. I'll never forget. This still boggles my mind. Um, It was in the 80s, and Vic and I, um, on Monday mornings, liked to grocery shop together. I know I have a strange husband who actually I like to take grocery shopping with me, and he likes to grocery shop with me. And um, we were at the grocery store, and, you know, we couldn't go anywhere in Costa Mesa that somebody didn't know us. We were at a church of twenty-five to 30,000 people. And um, we're in the grocery store, and, you know, I'm pushing the cart, and Vic's throwing stuff in, and, and this lady came around the corner, and she goes, oh, Vic and Susan. We say, yeah. Hi. Hi, how are you? You guys do your own shopping? <laughs> 
And I looked at Vic, and he looked at me, and I said, yeah, our maid's off today. And I was joking. I was joking. We never had a maid. I've never had a maid. Never had a maid. Yeah, we do. I clean my own toilets. We do our own grocery shopping. Yes, we're no different than you. But you know what? You have influence wherever you go. And people are watching you. I've heard Gary say it from the pulpit so many times. Remember that time he hid in Home Depot because he knew he was going to get angry at a kid that was talking bad to their... Remember that? We have influence wherever we go. We need to realize this. And she had influence over more women than she could even imagine. And they knew this. The nobles knew it. The princesses, the princes knew this. And the king knew this. And this was a slap in the face to a king that was trying to win favor with a people to go to war. And isn't that still true today? Men need to win favor with people to go to war. It's not always done. It should be done. But this is what was happening in this time. And like I said, the higher the responsibility God gives you, the greater the influence you have. She was queen. Leaders face this all the time. All the time. You know, there's not many places that I don't go. And I think to myself, now if somebody from Cornerstone saw me, would I be okay? Would somebody from Cornerstone see what I'm doing? Would I be okay? I remember we had taken a summer vacation in the 80s. A lot happened in the 80s. <laughs> to, to Hawaii. The Lord provided a beautiful vacation for us. Vic's dad had just had open heart surgery. His mom had just died. And um, we got to take the girls and his dad and my best friend and another friend of ours. And we got to go to Hawaii. And we were at the... Waikoloa Hotel um, on the big island on the Kona coast and we came out of our room and we were walking down the hallway and we hear Vic Schmelz and we're like oh my <laughs> word you know and it just goes to show you that no matter where you are somebody knows you you know had Vic been walking out of there you know drinking something which he doesn't drink but that wouldn't have looked good would it it wouldn't have been a good reflection on Calvary Chapel, it wouldn't have been a good reflection on the Lord Jesus Christ because Vic is a vessel of the Lord. So we need to remember that. But verse 17 says, women everywhere will despise their husbands. Now, we know very well as Christian women that we are to respect our husbands. I want to put this disclaimer right now because I've heard Gary say it. If your husband tells you something to do that's illegal, and I've heard him say this exact thing, you know, if your husband tells you to take this bag of weed and go down to the, store, down to the corner and sell it and make a profit and bring the money back to him, let me ask you, do you do that? No, no you do not do that. You do not break the law. You do not put your life in jeopardy like that. Okay, I just want to get that out of the way. So... But she was, the queen, she was the queen and she was asked to come and she was asked to display her beauty. We know very well as Christian women, we are to respect our husbands and we are to submit to our husbands and that's in Ephesians. And it's not always easy. And that's probably why we were told to do it so many times. If it was easy, do you think God would have to tell us to do it? Some of you may say, well, my husband isn't worthy of respect. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As I was doing this, I was thinking, what is it that God requires of us as Christian women? 
Ephesians 6.33, that we respect our husbands. And I know that we're talking about a heathen man and a heathen woman there, but this is here in Scripture for a reason. It is here in Scripture to show that our actions can affect our husbands. You know, how many times have you been in a group, and hopefully not many, but you've seen a woman disrespect her husband and you've seen her husband lose credibility with every other man in the room? You know, it has been said so many times, and I can't remember how many people or who has said it, but the husbands are the kings of their castle. And, you know, there are times when my king is coming home to his castle that I may not be ready to greet him. And I may be tired. And I may not want to make that feast for him that night. I may want him just to pull out a frozen burrito and heat it up in the microwave. (laughs) And sometimes he does. But you know what? I really try to make an effort now when my husband comes home to greet him. If I'm off the phone, I'll say to the kids, Daddy's home, i got to go. And they sometimes think I'm rude. I don't care. Daddy's home, i got to go. Haven't I done that to you? Daddy's home, i got to go. Yes, but I don't think you're rude. Thank you. <laughs> i got to go. i got to greet Daddy. Now, the dogs beat me to it. They greet him before I do now. They really do. But it's important that we make them feel welcome. And you may say to me, but Susan, you don't know my situation. And you know what? You're right. I don't know your situation. I am married to a godly man. He's not the perfect man. I hope you don't think that these pastors or any man who's a Christian is a perfect man because they're not. Sometimes they come home grumpy. Sometimes they come home and they don't even want to talk because they've talked so much. Sometimes they come home in a bad mood. Ask the Lord to help you help them. Ask the Lord. Timing is everything. Ask the Lord to know when to say what and what to say when. It's so important. You may think that your husband is not an encourager to you, so you don't want to be an encourager to him. That's the wrong way to think about it. Please, God, please, God, if you can write that on your bathroom mirror, if you could write it on your kitchen refrigerator, if you could write it over your sink, please, God, if you please, God, you'll always, always be okay. In verses 19 through 22, this chapter ends with a verse that says that every man should rule over his household. And we know that's what God wants. And you may say to me, well, my husband's not a leader. Then I say to you, pray for him. How much time a day do you spend praying for your husband? My husband... um, somehow has been called to um, do a lot of funerals. And this past um, Saturday, he came upstairs and he said, um, there's a little four-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old in our church who's passed away. And he said, um, the email went out, is anybody willing to do this service? And he jumped at it. He said, you know, I'll do it. And... I knew right then I needed to start to pray for him to do this because I don't think there's anything more difficult than a funeral service for a child. I have no question that that child is in heaven, no question at all. My prayers for my husband to minister to this broken family whose heart was ripped apart. She was only supposed to live eight hours. She lived four and a half years and was an incredible blessing to her family. 
But I immediately started to pray for my husband and ask God to give him everything he needed in order to do this. And you may say, well, my husband doesn't do stuff like that. I don't care if he mows the lawn. Pray for him. I don't care if he takes the trash out and that's his only job. Pray for him. Pray for him. Pray for him. Pray for him. It's such an important thing that we need to do. We have the power to build up and we have the power to destroy in our home. And it's almost scary sometimes how much power we have over our households, our husband, and our children. Show your husband that you believe in him, that you support him, that you encourage him, because God honors that. As Vic came home, um, Jimmy, who taught last night, by the way, if you didn't hear Jimmy teach last night, you should listen to it on the podcast. He did an incredible job. Uh, It was wonderful to listen to him. And um, he went with Vic to kind of watch and observe and learn. And they both came back to the house afterwards so Vic could change clothes. And um, I asked them how it went, and they told me. And um, Jimmy said it was just awesome to watch how the Spirit of God worked through Vic to minister to these people. And that is a gift. And I venture and I challenge you to each find a gift that your husband has and then pray for God to use that gift. Whatever that gift may be, even if your husband isn't a Christian, even if your husband might be a nasty, grumpy old man, pray for God to show you a gift that your husband has and then pray for God to give him the opportunity to use that gift. I can't think of anything better to spend your time doing. So in these last verses, we we know that this this um, this queen has disappointed her husband, and she's refused him. And these wise men give the king advice. And this seems very extreme to us, but it's a point being made in a culture. The man must be the head of the home. It's the way God set it up. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at a pastor when he says that, because he is a man. I mean, it's God that set this up. Sometimes I think I don't like this, and sometimes I relish in it. Sometimes I love the fact when I think, you know, sometimes, and I'll, I'll tell you this, one of my greatest fears is the future. Sometimes I worry about when we get old, will we have enough money to support ourselves? When we get old, will we be able to take care of ourselves? And then I remember I have a daughter named Elisa Cole who I'm going to move in with. But, but this, this, and she knows it, right? But this is the truth. This is what I say, and this is what God reminds me. Susan, Vic is the head of your home. Let him worry about this. And if I ever take Vic before you, I'll take care of you. So what are you worried about? I have to hear God say that to me over and over and over. But I love the fact that I have that covering. I love the head that Vic is responsible. I remember one time at a summer retreat, we were up at uh, our conference center in Twin Peaks, San Bernardino Mountains, and Pastor Romaine was teaching on marriage. And a woman said, you know, Pastor Romaine, can I ask a question? And he said, yes. And she said, sometimes I I have trouble letting my husband make all the decisions because he makes wrong decisions, and I worry how those consequences are going to affect me. And Pastor Romaine said something I'll never forget, and he said, is your God big enough to take care of you? And it stopped her in her tracks. And she said, yes. And he said, then let God deal with your husband. 
So there's a lesson there for us in that too. Pray for your husband. Let God deal with your husband. He's the one that is responsible. So it's the same way for us today in both that our husbands are not to be dictators, but they do answer to God, and they must please God with the way they treat their wives. In a godly marriage, both people are submitted to God, and we learn from each other. We listen to each other. You know, there's nothing more beautiful than a man who will hear something from his wife and say, that was from God. I know it's rare, but it does happen. It really does happen. And pray for your husband that he would be able to hear when God speaks through you because God can use you in your husband's life mightily. I remember one time um, we were in the middle of a huge decision and I didn't know what Vic was going to do. And I know what I wanted, but I didn't know what the Lord was going to tell me. And the Lord gave me one scripture and said, give this to Vic. And I gave it to Vic, and he came back to me later, and he said, do you know that that scripture you gave to me was the answer to what we've been seeking? And so I thought, be that vessel. Be that vessel that God can use. Be respectful and let God use you. Believe it or not, as God speaks to men through women, major things can happen in your life. Timing and delivering, as Gary said to men, are what it's all about, though. You know, it's really true. Men on a full stomach are much more pleasant to talk to. They really are. I learned a long time ago that if I kind of prepared Vic for things before he came through the door, that was helpful, too. And sometimes, as we read in verse 22, we get the wrong idea. Let's look at verse 22. It says, He spent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to each providence in its own script, and to each in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue and in every man should rule over his household. Again, we can get the idea that this is, you know, the hard thumb of the law, but that's not what it is for us. But in this situation, the man was the head of his household. The man needs to be the head of the marriage in the home. That's how God set it up, and he bears the greatest responsibility for decisions, and our husbands are held accountable. I think that when we think about marriage today, it's gotten so distorted, hasn't it? I don't think it will be long in this life, and I hope I don't see it in my lifetime, but I think that human beings will be able to marry anything. And I think it's very, very sad. We've lost the purity and the sanctity of marriage, and we need to keep it the way it's supposed to be. Love your husband, honor your husband, respect your husband, pray for your husband, as this queen didn't know how to do, and she obviously didn't do. So I'm going to say to you today that if you're married, pray for your husband and ask God to give him the love and the respect that you need to give him. If you're in a difficult situation, pray for God to minister to him and help him and help you. For those of you who are not married here, be selective and ask for God's guidance and also talk to many wise women before you marry him. 
it's so important. It's so important. You know, we have uh, a very powerful story in the Bible about a woman named Michael who despised her husband. And he didn't deserve to be despised. Who was he? King David. And he was worshiping the Lord. He loved God with all of his heart. And her heart was not right with God. Instead of being down worshiping and praising God with her husband, she was up looking down on him from a window and criticizing him. And when he came home, what a quench that must have been. I don't want to be a quench to my husband. I can't not be a quench to my husband if I'm not in prayer. Do you remember how this chapter ends? 2 Samuel 6, the Bible says, talking about David and and Michael. Michael had no children until the end of her death, and that was one of the most horrible things that could happen to a woman during this time. No greater judgment could, could God visit upon a woman than in that time that she would bear no children. That's how God dealt with Michael's despising of her husband, the king who loved the Lord with all of his heart. And you know what? Like I said, maybe you're saying, Susan, you don't know. My husband's awful. He's not even a believer. But I would take you to 1 Peter 3 that says that we are to win him without a word and that we are to respect. You know, you can respect a person that mistreats you or isn't nice to you or is rude to you without agreeing with his behavior. Do you realize that? You can show kindness to people who are mean to you. You can love those who hate you. And, you know, if you say to me, I can't, please pray and ask God to help you. Please pray and ask God to help you. It is so important that we learn to pour our hearts out to the Lord. Do you realize that the Lord has never despised you or me and he never will? So if you think that your husband doesn't deserve your respect, think again. Because God will find a way. God didn't tell you to wait and see if he earns it. God just tells you to do it. Remember that the grace of God is sufficient for all situations. And we all answer to God for our own actions. And we must have eternal perspective. You know, this was Vashti's world. She had a king that she really didn't know. She was called to respect him and she didn't. And she's going to be put out because of that. She will no longer be queen. This is the end of Queen Vashti. As the curtain comes down on chapter one, she's done. We don't know what happens to her. To me, it's a very sad story. Because usually if you were part of the king's harem, if you were in his concubine, if he never wanted to see you again, That's where you stayed. You were in prison for the rest of your life. That's such a sad, sad thing. But this king couldn't let this act of disrespect go on. And there's a purpose for God putting this here in this book for you and I to see it. Now, let me tell you that you'll probably go home and get challenged on this tonight. So go home and pray, pray, pray so that you can please God's heart and that your husband might say, wow, where'd she go today? What happened to her today? I like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first chapter and for all that you've shown in it. 
as we've met King Xerxes and as we've met Queen Vashti, may we learn from the things they did wrong. May we learn from the things that you desired of them and for them. May we look at this chapter and realize that you are in control. And even though your name wasn't mentioned, we see your hand upon these people moving and setting up situations that you might be able to place your people in the situation to save a nation. So I thank you for these women. I pray that they will read ahead. I pray that they will come back next week excited to see as the curtain goes up on chapter 2 just what happens. So bless these women, Lord. May we as women learn to be kinder and more respectful and control our anger. And Lord, may we please you in everything we do and say. We thank you and praise you in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.